0: Welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and I'm just going to get right to it. Uh, normally, I do a little update on what's happening with me. I'll give you that update. I'm working on stuff. I am excited to bring on my first guest or my guest this week, uh, a fantastic director, a great person in, just in the industry to, to know and pick his brain, which we're going to do today, John Reynolds. John, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing very well. Thank you.
0: Thank you for taking some time out to talk to me. I know that uh, things are happening. you got some projects going on right now, so I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it, too.
0: The most uh, exciting thing is happening this Halloween weekend, actually. You've got, which uh, this is going to air on Saturday before Halloween. And you guys, you and your wife, Deb, who's been a a guest on the show before, are doing a really cool graveside thing. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, it's a, a fundraiser for the uh, local museum, the Sedona Museum of Natural History, which has in it the basically the history of Sedona. Letters and all this. It's, just, it's a wonderful place, a wonderful group of people. And uh, so they do these fundraising situations every once in a while. And my wife and her partner, Sandra, who are the two Lucy's, have uh, teamed up with them and we're doing voices from the grave. So there's going to be people who are buried in the cemetery who you're going to get to meet and hear a little bit of their history, about eight minutes of it, actually.
0: And Sedona and the surrounding area is no shortage of rich history.
1: No, no, no. It's very—it's like the area. Very colorful. <laughs>
0: yes. I love it up there, especially this time of year uh, when I come in from, because my dad lives up uh, in uh, Chino Valley. And when I come out from visiting him and I go to Sedona, uh, just that long road in with all the trees and everything is just one of the most beautiful drives I've ever been on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend of mine who was a big time key grip in Hollywood who lives up the street from us. And we were coming in on 179, which is from the Maina freeway into Sedona. Uh, and he, as we were coming along, he goes, this is one of the greatest reveals. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and that's such cinematography, a great reveal. If you come around the corner, there's all the Red Rocks. They just open themselves up. But yeah, you're right. It's a good reveal shot.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's really beautiful up there. And it's just, totally. it's it's a slower paced place to me. You know, it's very casual. The businesses just seem, most of them seem pretty relaxed that I visited over the years. It's just a nice place to be.
1: It's it's an interesting place to be. It's very eclectic. mm mm-hmm. In I, such a small town environment, which it is. I mean, Sedona itself doesn't have an awful lot of people in somewhere about 13,000, 14,000. And then there's some uh, little outlets that have stuff. So, we're, you know, we're talking about an area maybe that has maybe 50,000 people.
0: I think we could get y- your entire town in one or two of our hotels here in Vegas. <laughs>
1: yes, that's right. It's truly. <laughs> And so there's, there's people you cross paths with. Uh, that you know, and people are separated, but you can't get anybody to drive thirty miles across thirty minutes to see a show uh, because it's so far away. Right. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, that's what I find particularly odd <laughs> coming from LA. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Well, in
0: LA, that's uh, that's just going across the street.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and you're lucky if you can get there in thirty minutes too.
0: <laughs> I uh when I lived out there, I had a, a friend I was visiting in Hollywood, and it took me forty-five minutes to get to where he was, but it took me two and a half hours to get home from the same spot.
1: Yeah. yeah. I don't miss That's that. LA. <laughs> I don't miss No, that I all. don't either. And I don't miss being moving along eighty miles an hour uh in a moving parking lot on four oh five or something. Oh, yeah. so, you know, I mean it's just like Packed in there, and everybody's just flowing down there, seventy-five, eighty miles an hour, like us. We're getting home tonight. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah. Do you, anyway, do you, do you miss being around the industry that directly, though?
1: Uh, there's elements about it I certainly miss. Um, you know, right now, for example, like, you know, well, for years now, there's a I had an acting coach that I used to study with, Harry Master George. He's a famous, well-known. Well, drama course, and I—if I lived there—if uh, you know Harry still had his class, I'd—I'd I'd go back to workshop mm-hmm. in a heartbeat. I miss that stuff. Um, I love, I love, I love the craft of theater, mm-hmm. and um, I just—it's—and I think the reason is is because it's made a big influence in my life. It's taught me how to read, for example, you know how to how to break it down. Uh, because that's your job as a director or an actor you know is you, you got to break it down and um, and and put it all together why do these people do what they do why what's the purpose of this and etc so it, it's been a very good education for me i think and i also think that theater uh, is the most important Um, building uh, structure in any community, in any metropolis, any farmland, anywhere in the world. Because it's the only place where people, where humanity, more specifically, gets to express itself. What do we want? What are we thinking? What are we afraid of? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Why do we do what we do? That's the voice of humanity speaking through theater. You don't get that in anywhere else.
0: I would agree with that. And I think part of it too, and and maybe I'm thinking along a different path, but I think part of it too, is if you're watching television or you're in a theater watching a movie, the biggest difference is you're not there with the people. You feel a much stronger connection. You're in it with them when you're in theater.
1: Yeah. Well, personally, now there are times uh, that I see things um actors specifically let me just say that and, and of course there has to be some structure in the scene to make it work the way it does so there's a director and the script the writer and you get into all the details of the picture but bottom line there are times that I've seen performers on screen do such a good job that I was like in, in awe of them you know the difference is is they, most of them um they're like Simply use actors. Mm -hmm. And on screen, it's simple use because you're not yelling. So you don't have to be exaggerated. You don't have to help people in the theater see things happen. If it's a big theater, moving, pointing to something can be lost unless you make it big. And there's ways to do that. You're trained to do that stuff. Um, So the thing about theater is you have to do that night after night after night. And of course, that's not possible. And that's the you know that's the struggle uh, to to if for mastery of your
0: craft and there's no resets you can't just shoot it again whatever happened you got to roll with it yeah you're not
1: fixing it in the mix
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> i hate that phrase <laughs> as an audio engineer i hate that phrase <laughs> yes. well are you able to to say you know go to the theater and watch a movie and, and just enjoy the movie? Or is there that part of you that's like, oh, that's an interesting angle they shot from, or I like the way they deliver that line of dialogue?
1: Uh, well, first of all, the reason why I like uh, the entertainment industry, specifically uh, narrative theater, feature film, that kind of theater, specifically because I love it. I love the whole process. And I love a good story. I love a good story. And I can watch a movie like, for example, one comes to my mind right now Risky Business.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I watched that film and I thought, and I watched it with my jaw open, going, my God, that is so incredibly shot. It is so incredibly edited. It's so incredibly scripted. It is so incredible. I was in awe of it. And then I went, but it is so bad. It's so wrong. The message is wrong, it's bad. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, I so I can see the craft of film and appreciate it for what it is. But that doesn't mean I'm going to walk away and go, you got to see that movie because it's great. Because I might go, I don't like the idea of saying you just got to say, F it. You know, no, you know, there's more responsibility in life than that. And so and, and if you do hustle, you can get into the big universities. I don't like that message either. See, so. Um, I go, okay, I you know, it's a marvelous looking film, but it's it's dead and stinking. Then I watched Zeffirelli, uh, Romeo and Juliet, sold an film. But when I watched it, I was in awe. I was in awe of him as a director because he took advantage of the actress. She was so good. She lit it up. And he put her in all the best places on the screen to take advantage of that light. I was so like, wow, that's really good. And she was really good. That's
0: why he did it. You know, it's interesting that you bring this up because I think a lot of times we just take the story and accept it because we're watching the movie and we don't really think about the message. I realized a couple of years ago, I was watching that film Christmas with the Cranks with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis Mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's fun. It's a fun movie. It's a Christmas movie, so it's lighthearted. But when I was about halfway through the movie, I realized the message was let people bully you into doing what they want you to do instead of you living your own life. Mm -hmm. I can't watch that movie now. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. um, So so the answer is, is that I can watch a movie and I really appreciate the whole thing about it right now. I'm I I can't I can't stop watching these little action sequences that they take from movies and they put on like Facebook. And I'm in awe of them. And I'm in awe of them because of the way they're shot, the stuff they do, the cutting. It is, it, it, it's, it's, I know for a fact they storyboard that stuff before they do it. Mm-hmm. There's no way you cannot not storyboard that stuff. They've been doing it for a long while. But the idea of storyboarding the movie is just not something you would do. It's a big thing for me. I think storyboarding is an awesome thing. I do it.
0: I do it in a heartbeat. I think it's kind of a lost art, isn't it? I mean, that, that used to be a very common thing.
1: Yeah, I think the thing about storyboarding for effects is economical, which is the whole point, isn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so so I think, uh, you know, you, you know I did a thing for ABC. Uh, Disney had just kind of purchased it and it was a thing on the reservation and um i literally as a director i had to, I, it was it was an not it was an interesting experience i gotta say um uh, but um so where was i going with this the thing was about it was that i don't, know, I don't remember where I'm, going. I'm sorry
0: oh that's okay um, so? if it comes to you we'll come back to it Okay. Uh, um, are you able to watch movies that you've worked on and enjoy them or, or do you kind of like, well, I spent enough time on that. I don't need to see it again.
1: No, I, I, I have a hard time going back. Uh, once I've watched it and I've, uh, Mutilated myself over it. I don't go back to <laughs> it again. <laughs>
0: well, it's not just the movie; it's it's all the memories associated with it for you. It's either.
1: all of that, but there's choices that you make. See, and sometimes those choices come from pressures outside. And and I, I I operate on a philosophy that first of all, every creative process that you endeavor on begins with a state of tumultuousness. And you have to just ride through that tumultuous period to get to the other side of it. And I liken it to starting at 6 o'clock and going to 12 o'clock. Your objective is to get to 12. And I I believe that once you step off towards 12, at that particular point in time, that project becomes its own energy. It takes on its own life because there's other people involved and there's other energies involved. There's all these other things. It just starts taking its own form. And and if you're going to ride you you ride that. You just kind of ride it and let it go and, be, and stay focused on what your objective is. So if I do storyboards, which I've done, I, I, I always go back and go, okay, what's next? And if we get in the jam, I can look at it and go, okay, I can get from here to there by doing this. And I can do something entirely different. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just another it's another script supervisor tool for me. But, but bottom line, um, you, you know, you, you you straight, you focus on that and you don't force it to noon. You allow it to wiggle and come in at its own time. It could come in at 10, 11, 12, 1, 3, but it, wherever it comes in, I can guarantee you it's going to be better than it ever would have been if you forced it to 12.
0: That's so true. And and how many times have we heard some of the best scenes that have been filmed in movies are just, they were accidents and it was, they happened because the director let the film breathe while they were shooting it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Lucky, lucky mistakes, lucky accidents. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, I, and t- actually for me, in a way, I kind of live for that. That's the reason. For one reason, I, I, you know, did a lot of work in big-time movies. But in the end, I really enjoyed low-budget films. But I, it, but for a different reason, because now I'm I'm older. Um, I'm basically in trailers doing time things and stuff like that. And I'm really there as a substitute in case my friend, who's assistant director. Uh, the DGA comes along, he's got to go on hide. somebody's got to run the set, so I'll come in and i would run the set. Right. But the reason I like it, because it, the people who were doing it were busting their butts to do something that was against them in many ways, but they were young and they needed it and they wanted to get bigger and better. They wanted to get in the IA. They wanted to get in the big show. And so so you could guarantee that if a problem came up, there could be a, a, a solving of that problem within a few minutes or so, and it would be better than the original idea. I've seen it happen so many times. I trust it emphatically. So that's one of the reasons why I can say, don't push it to 12. Let it go to 10. Let it go to 2. Mm-hmm. Let it go where it goes, but just keep it focused on what it's supposed to do. You know What are we doing here?
0: I would imagine just keeping the schedule moving is a real challenge because if you oh, do is. have, you know, things that slow your production down, you only have so much time on a certain set. You have to be at the next set at a certain time. That's mm-hmm. got to be a lot of pressure, though.
1: Yeah. I, here's another one. I got a first day of shooting. I get a call from my, in my motel room from the producer, uh, no, the uh, you know, production manager says, John, come down to Allen's room. Uh, we need to cut six pages out of (laughs) the (laughs) script.
0: Yeah, that's easy, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I did. I went down there, I sat down, and I proceeded to go through the script and I cut out six pages. But before that, I had asked to speak to the writers and people had a hemorrhage. It took one of the major monkey at the top of the studio chain to give us permission to talk on the phone. (sighs)
0: Yeah, I that's the kind of stuff that drives me nuts because that does yeah. not help the production.
1: Well, I can understand why they do that. Um, I just think that they should talk to the people and allow it to happen if there are people for reasons. But here's the thing. I'm not a director who takes over a movie. I'm not a director who takes over a play. I'm a director who lives by the word. And the word is the script. And my job is to bring that word alive and, and, and just present it. And so that's all I'm interested in. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? Did you think of this? What about this? And I have to say, in that conversation, because I'd read the script, I'd gone through it, I already had an idea of what was going on. They said several times, my God, I never thought of that. You know, well, no, they're writers. Right. <laughs> You know, that's what they do. My job is to break it down. And the actor's job is to break it down in beats. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why Deb was so successful at Disney and became such a good ghostwriter is because she was an actress. She still is. And she breaks things down in beats. So there's no emotional jumps. You don't jump from this to that emotionally. It's not biologically correct. You have to go through these processes to get there. And once you go through those processes, things might change. You have a whole different movie going on. <laughs> so you gotta go through the beats. You gotta know why this is happening, what's happening, and how it all nerves. And then as a director, you gotta sit down and figure out what it's gonna look like. And I happened to when I was younger, work at MGM with a director named uh Ralph um, no, Those Ralph Bellamy, Earl Bellamy was an actor, his brother Ralph was TV director, and he showed me uh, one day um, how he would break down the script and draw out what his thoughts were going to be for the day. And he shot it exactly like that. Mm. And, and and the reason he said, and do, you want to know why I do that? And I said, yeah, sir, I would like to know. He says that way the editors can't mess up my material.
0: Oh, yeah, because that's a whole nother stage of the things that can really change the game of the film.
1: Exactly. So there are times when I'm, in a, when I'm working on something, I'll go, let's just get as much footage in the editor's hand as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. And then we'll let them do their thing.
0: And that makes sense, you know, because if you're, if you're working with people you trust and they know how, what your expectation is and they meet it, uh, you can trust them to do that. I would imagine the first time you work with an editor, it's probably a little more challenging.
1: I had an editor say one time, when John Reynolds asks you what you think, he's just stalling until he figures out what he
0: wants. (laughs) Wow.
1: I laughed and I thought, well, in a way that's true. But what she didn't understand is that because of walking out the door at six o'clock, I let the project go on. I always have this thing in the back of my mind. I'll sit down with a group of people. like the last time I was director of something, I was meeting everybody. I said, okay, so everybody introduced themselves. I said, here's the thing I want you to know right away. I am the director, yes, but I want you to know I do not have all the answers. Please understand that. I don't have all the answers, but I tell you what I do know, that the answers are in this room, and I know that our project is going to be good because of that. Yeah. And that's the way I feel because I can say to somebody nearby, you know, and it doesn't really make any difference. You know, what do you think? Generally, there's someone involved in the conversation, and they'll say something, and boom, the idea will just go boom right in my mind. I go, okay, this is it. This is what we're going to do. And so, and it doesn't necessarily reflect exactly what they said either, but just the fact that I'm listening to them stimulates something in my mind, and all of a sudden, the answer comes. And so, boom! is what we do. And sometimes they have the exact answer. That's perfect. Let's do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and that group—that <laughs> you
0: know. group creative energy is—it makes a big difference. You can sit there in your in your office and you can work out everything, but when you're with that group of people, that's where new ideas form. You
1: know, to me, uh, for for theater, for me, rehearsals is everything. Oh yeah, one of my favorite times in rehearsals with the girls is because we're always. There's always music involved as they, you know, they come in and they do vocal warmups. And the minute we have all our talking and everything like that, but the minute those vocals of vocals set up, they start, part, you know, working on them together and going through the do re mi's and all that right there. That's when it all starts. And I, it just, I just, it just makes me feel so good. in you know to hear that to do. Oh boy, this is going to be so good, you know. And you know, it's just you know i just love the work and the the difference of course is w- when you do theater when opening night you're done yeah
0: right yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah there's, the, there's no post after that yeah the stage manager takes over the show and you know you're done yeah exactly uh, you can come be called called back
1: to look at stuff and things like that but generally speaking it's not like in a movie set you sit there and watch every shot and you make a decision with every
0: Right. Well, another big difference you mentioned is, is music, because when you're working on a, a play or a musical, you're working with the music as you're doing the rehearsals. Whereas when you're working on a film, there's nothing there.
1: Yeah, that's you know, It's funny, because in the very beginning, before there was sound, uh, they wouldn't have music on the set,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, <laughs> to help the mm-hmm. mood, you know.
0: Well, they used to have a piano player in the theater performing uh, back in the silent movie days.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, they just watch it, and look up there and play. It was, you know, it's pretty, pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, but th- so I kind of back to it. Of course, one of the things you mentioned is, yeah, I can watch a movie all the way through and just enjoy it without seeing anything. Okay, good. You know, but I can't watch But But the minute a DP gets his way with something and I notice it, I'm, I'm like, what are you doing this for? This is not contributing to the movie. This is some pretty shot you know, we don't need pretty shots. You know, it's just establishing shot. Okay. But sometimes they get lost in, in their photography. And so the thing you learn is that each department has its agenda. Mm-hmm. And that their agendas, if you leave them on their own, can influence, in <laughs> a lot of wrong ways, what you're trying to accomplish as a director. So you need to keep in mind that they have those, you know, those agendas. It goes back to the editor. An editor is really a director who's cutting it up. And so they're going to have those kinds of ideas. That's the kind of conversations you're going to talk about. Let's do a frame, let's do that. Let's cut this. What about if we insert that section here and do this right here? Those kind of conversations you're going to have there. But when you go with a set on a director of photography, you better be there. Um, I remember when I first started out in the studio, I was working on episodic TV, and I was working on a crew, and a TV director would come in on Monday mornings for the new start. On Mondays. it was always a new director, a new episode. And everybody would grab their coffee and follow the DP and the director to hear the first shot. Mm -hmm. And the crew would stand back there, and they'd listen to him talk, and from the dialogue, the crew would make up their mind what kind of week they are going to have. They would know by the dialogue between the director and the DP. But, and it wasn't the DP because you, you know your DP. You've been working with them every day. It's the director, you know, and what do they know? Right. And then, you know, and then, then so you have a director. I mean, a John, what's his name? He became a big director, John Ursula. or now when he first started in television, I have to be there with him and um, he won- he shot a scene, he shot a shot, he said, okay, now let's do this over here. And, drink and D.P. goes, no, 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 you don't do that. Well, why not? Because you have to move all of this equipment all over there. And then you're going to do that, and then you're going to move it all back over here. No, that's not the way we're going to do it. What we're going to do is we're going to do all the stuff here now, and then we'll move over there and do all that stuff there.
0: Yeah, shooting television is so different.
1: Oh, boy, is it? I, I once did a director tell a uh, t- uh, cameraman tell a director on uh, a TV series once that uh, he goes, Well, we're going to do this over here. He goes, No, you're not. Because why not? Because because we've never seen that wall. Oh, it was right. a long running TV series, right? They've never seen the wall. We're not going to shoot that because they'll, they'll not know where we are. But it's in their home. But we haven't seen the wall. <laughs> we're not going to shoot it. So.
0: Yeah, you just yeah. assume that certain things are part of the environment. You don't have to be shown everything, but but that you're you're like this is my view of the house. I stand against this wall and I watch Archie Bunker in his chair. You never yeah. see that wall that's behind you. They never once showed that.
1: Yeah, you don't you don't mess with that stuff. You keep people focused on what's happening in front of the camera, as they like to say in the business. There, if they notice that, we lost them.
0: Mm-hmm. I'll I'll tell you the first time I ever. Well, I'll I'll tell you to to go to your point about what throws you out of watching a a film. uh, For me, it's bad dialogue, you know, things that just don't make sense. Like, what are you going to do to help me? And then I'm not going to tell you the things that you need to help me. I see that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff a lot. And also things that just don't make sense. Like uh, in, in the reboot of Poltergeist, you've got this family. The guy just lost his job. The wife is an aspiring writer who hasn't even started her first book. They have no income, yet they qualified for a three-story house in a really nice neighborhood. Like it just it just loses me right there because it doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not realistic enough. Yet you can take me on a journey like Star Wars and I'll believe everything you show me.
1: I I I'll bet I can tell you one area that takes you out of a movie in a heartbeat.
0: All right. Music. Mm. Absolutely.
1: You know, and let me just say this it might not even be the music, but the quality of the music. Mm-hmm. Or uh, some sort of snippy thing in the dialogue. You can, see, you can see the cut. You can hear the cut. You can hear, well, they trimmed that one right there.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, any of those uh, little pops from when they, when they cut the audio and didn't smooth it out. Uh, yeah, those things drive me crazy.
1: And Yeah, because that's what you do. You're a musician. Mm-hmm. You are a, a recording producer. You're a mixer. You know everything about the stuff. And those things are going to p- p- jump out at you. And, and quite frankly, in my opinion, you're more daring than filmmakers are. And the reason is because most people can feel it. They can't tell you what it is, mm-hmm. but they can tell you they felt it. And they start getting distracted. And they lose interest in the performer. And then they lose interest in what's going on.
0: That's very true. See,
1: See? so the sound is one area you don't want to muck. Yeah, you can
0: you can mess up certain things graphically and people will find the visual. They'll find a way around it. But if the audio is bad, you cannot get away with bad audio. Uh, I'll I'll tell you, the first time I scored a film, uh, you know, you think it's going to be so easy, right? You you listen to soundtracks. You're like, yeah, I would have done something like that. But the first time you get a film and there's nothing in it, that's terrifying. When you realize how how uh, as a composer you could make that a comedy, you could make it a drama, or you can make it a horror film all by what music you put in, regardless of what's happening on screen. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. How how do you work with composers? Is it, uh, you know, when you've worked on film, obviously that's part of your responsibility as a director. How do you talk to composers? Do you say, this is the kind of music I want, or do you do what I do, whereas I like to talk it in motion?
1: Well, um, for me, when it comes to that stuff, I'm a bit musically inclined myself. Um, I know me know what I ever call myself a musician but I've played you know music in a band and you know I've done stuff. I directed in the opera once in Korea. Um, so you know I have thoughts about that stuff, but at the same time it goes back to the conversation we were having earlier that that editor. The DP, you pick that DP because you trust them to do what's necessary to take care of. And you work with them, and they know who you are, what you feel, and what you think. And they come to you and say, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Boom. You got a good deal. Then you you don't have to, you know, watch every move. The editor, same situation. You know, here's all the material. Get a first cut. Call me when you do. Sit down and take a look.
0: Mm -hmm. And then then there's other directors that'll sit there in the editing bay for days while they do it.
1: I know I, and I, to me that's a, a, it's insulting first of all. yeah, it, and it shows a lack of trust in the people, your your crew. You know, a pirate has to have trust in his crew or he's a dead man. <laughs>
0: yeah, you're basically saying I hired you because I have to have a body in that chair.
1: yeah, I, I, I'm hiring you because I believe, first of all, you know what you're doing. And that the things you're going to bring to it are going to help me make choices that are going to be best for the project.
0: Absolutely. I have one more question for you before we get into a couple of the projects that you've done. Uh, what is your feeling on how much is the actor's performance a responsibility of the director versus a responsibility of the actor? Because I see you know, actors get awards for their performances, whereas the director might not get an award for directing a film, yet they directed that performance. Where does that, how does that fit together for you?
1: I, you know, it really, it really depends on the actor. Uh, Frankly, uh, every one of the actors I work with, I have a different relationship with. It's a different kind of thing. And I, 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 again, I am a person who wants them to find it. I know, I know what it should feel like. I mean, I know where we want to go with it. I have a real good sense of it and I want them to find it and to feel that feeling that I have inside. And so uh, sometimes I'm manipulative. Um, And, you know, and and what I do is I just do a lot of questions and stuff like that. So the actor really in my mind is crafting their performance now if i have somebody who doesn't know the craft i have to put more weight into more time and energy and maybe be more focused on um you know that's a little different but i don't i have too much respect for the craft of acting mm-hmm. to 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 say well if it wasn't for me who would they be <laughs> right um, yeah you know, no, not at all. It's a team effort. And that's, the, to me, the beauty of theater, whether it's film, television, or stage, it's teamwork. You're working with a whole group of people. The, the most perfect form of theater, in my personal opinion, is the musical. Because it's got the highest quality people in every, every uh, uh, department, that puts that show up and it's, you know, now is the material (laughs) going to play or not? That's, you know, that's the muses as far as I'm concerned. Uh, But the production and the quality of people you put into it, to me, they're the highest of craftsmen. And I guess in a way you'd have to say that about, you know, special effects films and that, I guess in a way.
0: Yeah. Well, and and casting is so vital, especially in in a live performance in a theater, because you have to have people that can deliver night after night, sometimes two shows a day. Uh, Yeah. You have to have that, those people. Whereas in a film, you know, you have, you, you still have your budget. You still have to stay on schedule, but if you have somebody that's not that great, you need to pull them aside for a few minutes. You have a little bit more leeway with that. I, I had a,
1: a thing and I worked with this kid once and, uh, so, we got to rehearsing the scene we we're going to shoot, and we had to do several times because of a couple of technical things before we got around to shooting it. So we had an opportunity to say these lines, and he said them exactly the same every time. Mm-hmm. And so I pulled him aside and I said, "You know what? I think you wanted to really, really think about that. You're saying the things the same time. What that means is you're just saying lines you memorized, right? And oh, well, thanks for telling me and went out, we shot the scene. He did it exactly the same as he did before. I got the scene. I said, okay, new deal. We're moving on. I didn't take the time to let him go do it again.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, if 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 you know that's all he's going to do is keep hitting that repeat button.
1: Yeah, there's no point. So when we had the screening, he came up to, to me afterwards and he apologized He said, you're absolutely right. I'm I could see us. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You're absolutely
0: right. And you can't necessarily blame casting for that because they could do a great audition and then just not deliver in the film.
1: Yeah, yeah. See, now you're dealing in a whole other kind of conversation, away Because you're talking about casting. And casting directors in themselves are craftspeople. Mm-hmm. And so you want to find a crafts person, you know, a casting person that, you know, is going to be simpatico and work with you and and you need to be able to trust and when they come to bring you a new actor say this person has the chops you know and so you say okay let's see him work and you go oh i don't like him or oh yeah i like him or let's look at him again or let's pick this one and that one and you know that kind of dialogue happens but bottom line that's a that's a dynamic in that relationship so a lot of times you get to the idea that casting directors are going to bring you know people um that, you know, uh, and, then, and and again, that's, it, it depends on the casting director, too. Where do you go? Because they send out to agencies, and agencies will send out anybody. I need a, a 13-year-old boy, and a, an old blonde woman shows up. Well, what are you doing here, Raz? Well, we might, you might have a part for her. She's so good. No, no. <laughs> you know, no. Sorry. Well, let me just read it for you. Yeah. 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 So, no. So, I mean, it's, that's the beauty of having a casting director kind of filtered us.
0: Right. Well, you know, John, before we wrap up, I, I have to ask you about these projects because they're, they're part of a, a very widely known history. Uh, you were able to work on the movie E.T. Dee Wallace has been on the show. Uh, mm. Lovely lady. You got to work on mm. E.T. What was your role in that film?
1: I was in lighting uh, on that particular project. Um, that was t- pretty much towards the end of when I started moving out of it. Um, I was working with a cameraman. I'd been working with him for a while. There was a team of us, it was a lot of fun. And um, Alan Davio, a brilliant photographer. Um, I really. I really got a lot out of working with Alan. And Alan was the kind of guy, I understand he's passed away, which I was sorry to hear, oh. but Alan was the type of person who was confident and who could listen to you. And if you had a good idea, you know, he said, let's do it. It was just it, we were all when it came to lighting, we were all simpatico. And he, he could ask, John, what do you think of this? Or there was two other two other specifics in this situation. Any one of us could have said, well, this is what I think. We never were done setting a light. They said, okay, we're going to do it again. We set another light. Okay, we're doing it again. We set another light. And then we said, okay, new deal. We tear every light out and start all over again. We were never done making the shop look better.
0: Wow. I love that. But I love that openness. You know, that's how, that's how people grow in the industry. They don't grow by being sidelined or just told, hey, boy, go do this. You know, when you nurture people's brains and their creativity, that's what grows the next generation.
1: Yeah, he was—he was had a great eye. He won his Oscars; he deserved them. He was a wonderful man to work with, and um, I enjoyed those periods uh, working. I, I worked with another guy uh, that I enjoyed working with was Haskell Wexler, and he's the one who told me I should be a DP. Hmm. You should be a DP. So anyway, you know, one thing leads to another, and then you find yourself in a whole new world, and it's a whole new thing. You know, there you are. You know, one time I was going to theatrical college, and at that time I could go to any recording studio in Hollywood I wanted to go. I could go backstage in any concert I wanted to go. Uh, I worked for a radio station in in Los Angeles for a while. You know, Um, you know, it's just, I just, for me, it was... You know, that kind of thing. My friend Robin, one day, we were down in Phoenix doing a commercial. And we're old-timers now. Uh, The young guys are on there, and they're firing away. And we're back. You know, we're finger-pointers at this point. Mm -hmm. And he says to me, John, you know what? I go, what? He goes, I'm bumbling my way out of this business exactly the way I bumbled my way into it. (laughs) (laughs) And I laughed. I thought that was so funny because it's true. Yeah, it's true. Yeah,
0: I I will say the lighting, uh, especially in ET, with the effects, were so important because you know just thinking about the way the ship was lit, uh, you know the the lighting when the door opens. I mean, there were so many powerful lighting moments in that film. Uh, But truth or rumor, were you the one that figured out how to make his finger light up?
1: No, no. That story stems from the heart. Um, beat because mm. you remember you could see his heartbeat Right. and Stephen um, was not happy with the way it was looking and again I was standing there with Alan and I think Gene Kearney was there or well, I might know it was a puppet master and Stephen so, so it was Stephen, Alan myself and the puppet master and they were talking about it and I was staying there and so I said, you know what, you might want to try a CT, uh, the um, Lee Gel 54. Uh, it's a nice fire-looking gel. And Stephen looked at Alan and goes, what do you think? And he goes, oh, sounds pretty good. Let's look at it. And so they did. Mm-hmm. The thing about it is, is that I had a, a lamp in my home. Uh, but I was living in, in Hollywood. Or, uh, no, I was living in uh, the uh, Agora actually. At Malibu. Oh, okay. And I had a, a, this, this little uh, fire thing. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to, to have the color of fire. Mm-hmm. So I asked uh, a famous director of photography who was actually retired but came out of retirement to, to, to take over for somebody for a film. And I can't remember his name, but at the time, he was like the father of somatography. Wow. <laughs> and, and he goes, well, I'd use gel 54. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he told me, it well, was gel 54. is a really good one. So <laughs> I had done it. And I said, yeah, it's a good gel. And so it came up. And so that's how his heartbeat became the color that it at all, wow. it was just because I had suggested it. So, yeah. That puppet was an extraordinary thing.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: there were times when we'd be lighting it, and it would turn and look at us, because those puppet people didn't leave the... They didn't leave it, and neither did the sound mixer. Sound mixer... Only time the sound mixer met, left his mixer was when Steven said, OK, cut, new deal. He yeah. would walk off the set. Wow. The minute he walked off the set, the mixer would get up and go ahead right on out to the bathroom and then head back and get on his mixer. Why? Because Steven would walk in and like, okay, roll camera.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to respect people that are ready to do their job.
1: Well, it, it took me a while, honestly. I, 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 at first, it was frustrating. I go, let the guys do their job. And then I realized, wait a minute, they could do their job forever. Look at me. I'm never done. Mm-hmm. Until you say new deal, I'm going to be keep on chucking. And that's what they're doing. They do. You don't hire the best. They're not the best for either. you know. They're the best because that's what they do. They give 125. percent Exactly. It's, it's just what they do. And I went, okay. The people are not going to notice that. They're not going to notice the decorating in the back. They're not going to notice this. They're not going to notice that. They're going to. If again, if you notice that, you lost them. It's what's in front of you that they're paying attention to. And I, to Stephen's credit, I, hey. He was right. I agree with him. You know, and there's lots of things I didn't like about Steven, but that wasn't one of them.
0: Did you guys know at any point? Did you did you kind of look at each other and say this film's going to be big?
1: Yeah, I went home and told my wife at that time this picture is going to be big. Yeah, and it's going to be a big box office thing. I, I, I'm going to jump on you here for a moment. I did a, uh, a film once, a, a short film. I won semi Golden Eagle, and I almost got nominated for. Moscow on it, but anyway, wow. um, I was trying to hawk it for a 60-minute piece in our feature, and I was at a Warner Brothers talking to an executive over there. Young guy with no socks on his loafers or his feet on his desk, and uh, the piece I did was a ecology piece told from a Native American perspective. So what I learned is that becomes a, it becomes an Indian movie. No, it was not an Indian movie. It's a movie. Okay, never mind. Anyway, uh, we used a lot of the animals that uh, uh, Dances with Wolves were using. Same animal person. Steve, Steve, oh, um, well, it'll come to me. Anyway, um, and he and I were good friends because we we've worked together on several things. So I knew him really well. Yeah, And that's the reason why I had access to his animals. And we used the wolf, Terry the Wolf, and uh, lots of stuff. Anyway, so I heard lots of reports about the film and things like that. Um, so this guy, he says, oh, you know, Kevin Costner's doing an Indian movie. I go, yeah, I know about that. He goes, well, I really hope it's going to be successful. I said, you want to know what I think? He goes, yeah. What do you think? I said, I think it's going to be the biggest motion picture of the year. Mm-hmm. He jumped up. I mean, his seat lifted. He said, why do you do? I go, yeah. You want to know why? He goes, yeah. I said, when you go to the bookstore, do you ever, you know, do you, do you ever, Ask the people who sell the books what people are are reading. I mean, you just don't walk in there and take off the top ten from New York and go, I'm going to make a movie out of this. Do you ever talk to the people who are selling books? Ask them. Because if you do, what they're going to tell you, and this was true at the time, is they're buying Native American mythology. Mm -hmm. And they're buying American Native mythology because they have no mythology of their own. Native Americans have mythology in the dirt. Most people here don't. True. And that's important to you. It's just important organically to you. Mm-hmm. And so people are reading up on it. They're identifying with it. And like, well, I hope you're successful. It was so successful it knocked mine out of being able to be nominated for an Oscar for short film. Wow. Because they didn't want to play favorites. They didn't want to look like they were playing favorites to end in
0: movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, working with animals—that's a really gutsy move because there, there is so much unpredictability there.
1: Well, I, yeah, no. Um, yes, if you're not used to, I've, I lived on a ranch. I worked, I was a country boy. Uh, I knew animals, wild and tame alike. Um, I, I was thrilled, I must admit, that we did a shot in a very enclosed area. It couldn't have been any bigger than a five-foot, square-foot area, maybe maybe eight. And we had a cage backed up into this area that was all surrounded with fence, The camera was outside of it, and myself and Steve Martin, the animal trainer, were inside the cage, and they let the wolves in there. And so everybody was protected, but Steve Martin and myself, and we were in there with these wolves. Mm -hmm. And I never encountered a wolf in my life until I worked with Steve. And I was so struck by their brilliance. They are so incredibly smart. You can't get a wolf to do two tricks twice going find the shortest avenue boom and they're gone and that's so you better get that shot if you're having them jump over something right. you better get it the first time
0: well i did uh i did some voiceover dubs for the movie roar melanie griffiths uh, movie and uh, all the lions that they had i mean lions are i don't care how trained they are they're dangerous animals and there were so no. many of them i'm like why would you put a 16 year old girl in this position or however old she was at the time, I, I, I would have been terrified to have been on that set.
1: Well, we had a scene where we had a bear. We ended up with a Kodiak bear, and I called, he called me because I used a Kodiak instead, and he told me that whole story. And I went, okay, fine. Uh, let me look at it. And he said, you want to look at it? I said, sure, you always do that. So I went up and I looked, and as I walked up, I was sitting in a cage. The cage was a little about a foot off the ground, but it was sitting on its haunches on its butt, and it was sitting there at the bars looking, and it was bigger than me.
0: Yeah. Those things are huge. Uh, yeah, I went, okay, that,
1: that'll work. So anyway, we did this sequence. Uh, we did it with Michael Force, And he's down looking at some tracks. And behind him in the bush, this bear rises up. And he turns around and he sees the bear. And then he starts, takes off, starts running. And uh, that one, that was a little interesting because that was just the animal trainers with the bear. And, and, uh, Michael was really close to that bear. This is a bush between them. Wow. But when we did the other sequence where he's up in a tree and the bear's trying to, you know, he's below him and he's standing all up and he's, you know, pawing at him. What they did is, cause we took a long shot of that, is they put a little wire, uh, around an area of about 10 feet around the bear and put a battery on it and made it hot, a 12 volt battery that made the wire hot. And the bear would not go near that
0: wire. That's smart. But do you have, like, uh, do the trainers stand by with, say, like a tranquilizer gun or something in case of an emergency?
1: Uh, No. I've never seen that myself. Um, Because generally a lot of times, you know, you see game and stuff, you don't realize, for example, that they're staked down, for example um and or they're trying to do specific things which you only have them do specifically the biggest thing for steve for example is working with deer because deer would do that but they just might wander off in the forest and you'd lose them. we almost lost one of his deer once <laughs> uh, but they finally got it wrangled back into the you know and they got himself back And they didn't know it, it wasn't trying to escape it just
0: right just wandered off
1: Chelsea Day, Promenade. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah. So, but no, um, I've had cats that I've uh, had tranquilized because of sequences that I was doing. Um, I had Michael in a cave uh with a, a mountain lion, but he was staked. Right. Uh, you know, so there's there are these safety things that take place to just You know, they're just a part of the way business goes. So they take time out of your day. You have to calculate that time. As a a first assistant director, your responsibility is is getting the day's shots done in the can on schedule.
0: Well, I have taken up so much of your time and I hate to do this, but I've got to ask you about Jaws. It's one of my all time favorite movies I have seen. As far as I know, uh, I've seen every documentary on this movie. And they really play up how intense the, the shooting was because of the actors going on strike and, and the budget and everything. Was it really as crazy as they make it out to be?
1: Uh, well, first of all, understand, I did not work on that movie. Oh, you didn't? Uh, it, no, at that time, I was working on Tower of Inferno. Oh, wow. But the movie business is a movie, is a it's it's an industry, it's a community. It's like a town. News travels fast. And you get on a show with people, and they go, oh, I just finished working on this. I just finished this. You know, I just finished that. And, uh, but here's an element of it that people don't recognize. Stephen got a budget to do the movie. And he got into doing the movie. And he came to the conclusion that what was going to happen was because of the problems they were having, they were going to shelf the film. Mm-hmm. So he went over budget intentionally. In fact, when he did ET, he did it with his own money because nobody would give him the money to do it because he was always over budget. Ah. But he was always over budget because they had put so much money in it, they had to release it. <laughs> yeah, it's a catch-22. That's you know, I think frankly, a, a, a lot of the stuff um boils down to that. Now, close encounters of the third kind. Was different because he had major directors of cinematography working with him, and they—they they are <laughs> a card to draw. <laughs> I mean, it's a wild world out there with those people, and 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 they are strong-headed, and you do have to, you know, have a, a ring in their nose, or they'll run right over you. Especially the ones that got the the you know, all the credits and stuff, so you know, uh, they're their own animal that you have to deal with. And so Stephen was so frustrated with that that he wouldn't work with them again. That's the reason why Alan Davio shot uh, E.T.
0: Interesting.
1: Alan Alan Davio had gone to college with Stephen and shot Amlin, his short film that he did. Mm -hmm. And then Alan went on to do commercials, which is where I bumped into Alan. And we did a lot of national commercials. And then uh, because... Uh, Stephen needed a DP for ET. He called Alan, and so that's how we got there. And we did a few projects with Stephen uh, to the point that Alan didn't want to work with him anymore.
0: Wow, it's yeah. it's so wild when you find out you know all the the different groups of people and who likes who and who won't work with who. Uh, and, you know, a lot of it comes down to just how intense these projects get, especially when you're given a big budget, you the expectations are high that it's going to be a blockbuster I and mean, the pressures just become tenfold, don't they?
1: Yeah, um, they do. But um, it's it's odd. Uh, it depends on, you know, it really depends. Uh, it depends on the director, and, and you can have your production manager, your your first AD. They make a lot of uh, issues up. For example, in this last thing with Alex Baldwin, the crew is walking off. Why? Because they they couldn't handle the first AD. He was a pain in the butt. He wasn't doing things right. He was creating problems. They weren't paying him, da-da-da-da-da-da. So, you know, you got to, you know, that stuff. But then, if you worked on a Clint Eastwood movie, you would never hear anybody talk loudly at all. Right. They wouldn't yell, all right, rolling back. They're quiet. They never would do that. He would fire you. Wow. He would just point his finger, and the AD would say, okay, let's roll it. you like a whisper? And things were just incredibly quiet on his sets. Wow. And Michael Landon. You look at him, boy, they are in charge. Mm-hmm. You know? And so then when you get into a feature film, then you get, you see, you get a director who's a screamer a person who feels that everybody has to be wound tight in order to do a performance. You know, it's like it's like Lawrence Olivier saying to Dustin Hoffman once, have you ever heard of acting, Dustin? You know, <laughs> but Dustin was lying to him and, you know. Yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah. So that has a lot to do with it. And then I, I worked on a movie, uh, Brainstorm, mm-hmm. and that's Natalie Wood on that. And in North Carolina, we were shooting uh, day scenes at night. Think about that.
0: Yeah. That's how bad it was going. Yeah. That says a you lot know. right there. Yeah.
1: And so, so it really, it really depends. Uh, it depends on the actors, you know, it depends on the money. Because sometimes uh, John Barrymore, <clears throat> uh, Drew Barrymore's great grandfather, uh, said once, if you if they have you do a scene with a horse, demand a three legged horse. <laughs> and the reason he said it was because you needed to pay attention to. Them. If you need them to pay attention to you, or they'll walk right over you. Don't let them do that.
0: Yeah, and then there's the the really oddball situation like Gladiator, where they started shooting the film with only 18 pages of script. Yeah. I could see that. That came out to be a fantastic movie. Uh, I I don't know if that's luck or genius or what that is, but uh, they pulled it off. Uh,
1: you know um, I, I I don't think it's, it's not really either one of them. Actually, it's though it's a little bit of both. But, I mean, when you get professional people to do a job professionally, they know a way. And the great thing about the movie business is, is you're solving a new problem every 15 minutes. You're constantly finding obstacles you have to work over. So you get used to jumping over things and doing this and doing that because you got to do it in order to get this done and stuff like that. So decisions are made fast. Why? Because time is money, and you need to get your day's work done. And so everybody's on that beat. And everybody's working for that thing. So everybody's working on one focused thing. Now you have the best in the business working on all those departments. Right? You know, you have good coordinators, you have this, it can be done. And also, I I don't know, but I'll be willing to bet you there's some storyboarding went into that one.
0: That would not surprise me. Even just thinking, though, from from like a costuming perspective, the amount of, uh, you know, uh, suits of armor they had to have, the weaponry. Uh, it seems like that would be needed months in advance.
1: Oh, the sets, Some of those sets they were all constructed. Yeah. You know, uh, they went to countries where they could find pieces of it, and put it all together. But that's a lot of labor. That's a lot of time. They were ahead of it. Yeah. yeah exactly. No doubt about it. That's, again, again, goes back to the reasons why storyboarding is so good. Because you just in, Eng, in England, they do that, and you go in in the morning, and television is right there on the wall. The whole storyboard for the whole day is, and so as you're a prop master, you can go and look at a frame and go, Okay, I need this, this, and this. As a cast, as a uh, costumer, we're going to need you to do this uh, for the makeup. Oh, this person's in this scene, this person's in this scene. We need to get this and this together, etc. Yeah. So, everybody knows it. Yeah, they know I had. It's not like, I mean, in Hollywood, we do this call sheet thing, and I can look at a call sheet. And I, you know, I had a friend come and visit once, and he, he had another guy with him, and they knew that I had worked in the business, and they were talking about Texas Walker, uh, Walker, Texas Walker, anyway, that Norris thing they were oh, doing in North. Dallas. Yeah, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, they had a call sheet with them, and the guy goes, Well, yeah, I mean, you took a call sheet. I go, Can I see it? And he goes, yeah. And I looked at it and I learned everything I wanted to know. I knew mean, where the hospital was, how close it was, what the weather was going to be, what time lunch was, how many they were serving, how many vehicles were involved, who all the people were involved in it. You know, what size of crew they had, everything right there in front of me.
0: Uh, interestingly, I've been in the offices for the Bellagio where they do the, uh, the, the garden in the conservatory and they storyboard that. Mm hmm. All the different yeah. sections of that, that garden are all storyboarded. They're beautifully drawn uh, with great detail. And then I went, and, you know, after the first one I saw, when they actually constructed it, I said, this looks exactly like what they had on those pictures. Uh, just amazing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah it's, yeah, it's a very important art form when you're doing those functions, I would agree.
1: There's so many little things that go into it. Like I worked on Dinosaur. and um, And I was only there... Uh, because Tom called me and said, John, you, I need you to come work on this. You need to watch this process because this is where it's going. And so he, I, I think he could help. And so I went there and I worked on that that thing. And um, so a dinosaur running, you see all that dirt flying up. Well, those are explosives. Oh, really? And they, they yeah, they mapped the whole thing out. They took, uh, you know, stick figures, if you will. Uh, we went out scouted the location, picked all the places, went back, got the crew together, came back. And uh, we had a surveyor with us who, uh, for the first time, surveyed all the shots and everything. So every all the shots were already technically worked out before we came back. And we went back and got the crew in order to facilitate all the things that we were doing. And so all these shots that we were doing in this canyon, there was nothing in them. The camera was moving, it was pushing in, it was wrapping around, it was doing all these things, but there was no, nothing in them. They, were, they put the dummies out in front, get focus, and then they get them out of the way, and boom, they do their shot. Wow. And then go back to the studio in, in L.A. and get all the footage and hand it over to the CGI people. And then the CGI people would take all those things, and they would put them together, and voila, you got a a motion nice picture
0: it's amazing um, isn't it
1: yeah you know interestingly like just before we wrap up here because I could feel that one um Steven Spielberg did a all uh, cGI movie and they asked him what he thought and he said, if I could do all my movies this way, this is the way I would do them really yeah and I had to laugh why total control
0: Hmm. See, I would think, I would think he would be a director that wants practical effects, that he wants that realism in it.
1: Well, you're you're right. Your instincts are right on that to a point that it's damn right annoying, frankly.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: because all of a sudden now you have a light bulb in the scene that you wouldn't put there for the shot, but you have to have it. And those, are, these are the kinds of little things that can get annoying to DTS and crews and stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, and because he was a director, he insisted, and he got it. And we had to figure out a way around it. Yeah. But I noticed in his Abraham Lincoln thing, he did lots of things in there that he would never allow before I, when I worked with him, ever. So I go, okay, he's changed. I even thought the last sequence in it was a mistake. Really? Yeah. The last sequence, in my mind, you look at that last, ride right in the buggy and they right in the And you look at that sequence and you watch them and you can see they made a little mistake but it worked for them and they had it and they went okay let's keep that
0: one hmm. i'm gonna have to look for that very interesting i i think is is it a matter of growing with the technology or is it a matter of avoiding things you don't want to do because you can work around it now
1: well knowing Steve and i would say it's probably time related okay okay <laughs> yeah. we, we don't have time We'll have to do it. Okay, no, let's go, let's move on. Right. Um, uh, when I was working on um, Twilight Zone, the movie, we worked on the Kick the Can, which is Stevens' episode, and he loaned us to uh, Beard. What's his name? Um, director of, uh, what's his name? Um, Mad Max. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. And George. Mm-hmm. And so we did that episode, which was a terror 2,000 feet. It was George and kicked a can with Steven. And so um, Melissa Matheson uh, was the writer theory, and um, she was there. And, and because of Steven's governance, he, he required his people to be on set. And so she was trapped on set, but she had nothing to do. And she was not happy with it right. um, at all. And so listen to her and the script supervisor, I think I could have been customer talking, I'm to be there. And um, she was very upset. So we came to the sequence where the boy's crawling out the window. And he's going, I'm gonna stay young and do it all over again. The other people are going, okay, we're gonna all stay behind. <clears throat> so as he crawls through the window, he has a line. And Steven goes, okay, where's my rider? And they go off to find her and they can't find her. Hmm. I gotta get my rider, he's yelling, I want my rider. And she's not coming. Meanwhile, in the back of the set, is uh, Clint Eastwood? He's watching all of this. What well, you know? So, so here. So l- let me just set this up. Clint comes in while we're setting up the shot. Stephen, and we rehearse it. Clint watches the rehearsal. Stephen says to Alan, uh, "How long do you think?" And Stephen and Alan, because this is a big issue with them, Alan said, 15 minutes." So Stephen goes, "Okay." So he leaves. He comes back in ten minutes and he starts pacing in the back of the set. Alan, it's 11 minutes. Alan, it's 12 minutes. Alan, 30, he knew he do that. Mm-hmm. And so, so now Alan goes, okay, I'm ready. So he gets the actor there, and now it's his writer. He's the writer's not there. Yeah, Why? Because she got tired of it. <laughs> oh, screw him. she doesn't have to be there. And he can scream, screams all she he wants, it's not gonna make any difference. So he finally turns to the actor and he goes, say this. And the actor says it, we get to take it because that was good. Let's go. We're done. (laughs) He knew all the time what he wanted. Yeah. But he wanted her to come out and do it because he was paying her to do that.
0: Oh, I see.
1: That's all. And so that kind of thing is what bothers crews.
0: Yeah. That's just wasteful.
1: There's no respect for the people that you have. So two, when I watched Lincoln, because uh, I wanted to watch the actor, um, I I noticed things and I went, my God, <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Stephen allowed that? You know, well, he did. You know, and I said, oh, OK, so I don't know what happened. I don't know why it was. But knowing him, in my mind, um, it was, you know, it was easier mm-hmm. for him in some way.
0: So I don't know. Since you brought it up, I I want to ask you, I thought it was interesting that they redid the uh, Terror at 12,000 Feet because uh, that was such a classic Twilight Zone episode. It seemed that could be kind of risky. You know, that could be one of those things that people love or they hate the fact that that was done in the movie. Uh, Was there any scuttlebutt about not doing Mm -hmm. that?
1: No, nothing I'm aware of.
0: Hmm.
1: No, that's... no, We had John Lithgow, too.
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, he did a great job. You, I I, really, I like him. He's a,
1: he's a really fun guy. Mm-hmm. He's fast. He's quick. He's great sense of humor. Very proficient at his. We were. There's a sequence where he goes into the bathroom and he's panicking, and he looks in the mirror and he's waving because that's what he's thinking. It's just going out of his mind. So I did all the stuff in there the day before and the second camera was in there the camera was in there and they were shooting a, a uh, you know, a test so I'm yeah. the in there and they said, would you mind acting in i throw like a I think you're throwing up, he yelled at me so I said, I did and uh, so anyway, the, the next day he and I are saying I mean these two kinds of things don't relate, but they do in a way so um, we're, he and I are standing behind the set where that bathroom is and you can't see in the shot that there's an open area there at all because of the way the camera's set up. And so he and I are talking and I forget what we're talking about. And um he says uh so behind this wall there we can hear okay we're ready okay roll sound roll camera mark it and on market he turns to me and goes just a minute <laughs> <laughs> he steps inside <laughs> he does the thing and they go okay that's a take we're good on that one thank you John and he steps out and continues the conversation like nothing happened.
0: Wow. That's great. You
1: know, well, he did other things. It was so fun. But um, back to the other thing. So one day I'm walking out of the studio there on that that set. And the door, uh, the big doors were open. And as I'm walking out, Stephen's walking in. He looks up at me and he goes, good acting. And I'm thinking, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> And it didn't occur to me until much later. Oh, he was talking about the stuff in the bathroom. Oh. secrecy <laughs> when they were doing the test, <laughs> right? Oh, that's funny. It's, it, yeah, it's one of those things that makes it so fun.
0: I love John Lithgow because he can play a very compassionate person, like he did in the Manhattan Project, but he also plays a great villain, like he did in Cliffhanger. I mean, just just such a great versatile actor.
1: Yeah, he's got a lot of depth. And but he's got a, a great he he's a com- he's a comic he's a comedian first of all that's why he can do what he does a comedian can do drama but drama people don't often are able to do com- comedy right and and I I remember hearing Goldie Hawn say once to somebody you know I've never met a dumb comedian. <laughs> <laughs> And I think she's probably right. They might be crazy, but they're not stupid. right. Yeah, very, <laughs> that's why they very can true. get up and do what they do. But anyway, John's that way. He's got a facile sense of humor. It's quick, uh, and it's good humored, even when he's cutting. It's done with good humor. <laughs> I liked
0: him he he's kind of a he's across from being like a refined British gentleman and just a guy who can just relax and have a good conversation. He has that ability to carry himself like a classical actor.
1: Well, I think the thing is, is that he's a, he's craft confident, mm. you know, he's confident in himself and his craft and, um, and he doesn't take himself too seriously. You know, he takes his work seriously. He takes, you know, things like that, but himself, you know, he's not any better than anybody else. And he knows it and he treats people that way. Mm. Yeah. He treats people that way.
0: That's really important. Yeah. Very important. Cause you, you hear stories about actors who are, you know, just, just from the methods that they use, they can't talk to anybody. They just have to walk on set and be that character. And then you hear about other guys that are just like, you know, I was hanging out with the crew, you know, before we started shooting and then they called me over. I had to hurry up and finish my joke. And, you know, like I, I like people that make it comfortable on set for everyone that they're not. I'm the star. Mm-hmm. You know?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I it, it's I, I think it all that particular situation has to do with uh, uh, the ability, uh, the sense of security. Mm-hmm. If you're an insecure, insecure person and you have a lot of fear, well, that, those are the ways that people behave, and uh, those are kind of things that you know I like to try to avoid. And there's and, and the interesting thing is it is there's so many really righteously good human beings who work in the motion picture business. And then there are those. (laughs) (laughs) And they get all the press.
0: Right, because they're interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, they're bigger than life. Uh, But you don't hear about, and even with actors, a lot of times, you don't appreciate, you know, what kind of person they really are because you have this idea of who they are. I was married once to a film actress, and she had been quite famous at one point in time. And we'd be somewhere, and somebody goes, "Do I know you from Santa? What high school did you go to?" <laughs> you know, because they because it had been some time since she'd worked, so they weren't sure, but they could, they recognized it, but they weren't sure where it was. So it must have been something local. And I always laughed at that. I always said, "Isn't that funny how that works?"
0: Yeah. You know,
1: when you go out, everybody knows your name, and then all of a sudden, when they go, "Did you go to high school?" Something they don't. Can't, can't place where. How does that feel? Oh
0: after yeah, that, right? that's an insult, right?
1: Yeah. yeah, almost. It's 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 like sobering, really. It's humiliating. Mm. It's 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 humbling, frankly.
0: Well, it is, uh, but when you see people outside of the element that you recognize them from, like when I have worked in office jobs and I happen to be out for dinner and I see one of my coworkers at the same restaurant, I'm trying to remember where I know them from because it's not yeah. in context and it takes me a minute sometimes. Uh, but yeah. w- but you don't think you're going to meet these people in real life.
1: I had a, I, I used to, uh, there was a place in uh, agora there called uh Real old place and A i think tom rendon used to run that place and there was lots of celebrities who used to come in there a lot and uh i knew jason robarts from there and uh steve mcqueen uh ali mcgraw you know she worked behind the bar some but so but i'd never ever worked with steve mcqueen on anything i just knew him from there and i didn't really talk to him a lot you know i I have my own thing. So they have theirs, I have mine. So I leave that stuff alone. Unless they know me, or I know them, oh, I don't bother them. Yeah. So anyway, um, uh, I was late. So the only times I've been late to set, And I was rushing. Across, it was up 23rd to Fox. There was this big open area there. And I was rushing across. And here comes some guy with a big, long beard. I mean, really long and kind of long hair. And I'm thinking, can I... I know that guy from somewhere. Where do I know him from? And it wasn't until we were right up to each other that I recognized him. And I started laughing (laughs) at myself for doing the same thing that other people do all the time. Because I didn't recognize him. Why? Because it. At the old place, it's just Steve, very alone. He was he was doing enemy of the people, I think, at the time. Oh <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. And he looked at me like, "What the hell is your thing?" You know, and I didn't stop. I wasn't. I was in a rush, and he didn't stop me.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Again, I'll never forget that. Yeah, you know, that's the that short <laughs> It It is.
0: It's it's an interesting thing because there, you know, celebrities have always been like, uh, almost like they're, they're kept in a different building and they're not allowed to come out and mingle with the public until they're, you know, they have to do a press tour or whatever. And people think I'll never meet these people. And when they bump into them randomly somewhere, it's just this, there's that part of the brain that says it can't be that person. There's no way that I would just randomly bump into whoever Mm -hmm. it it is. So there is Mm -hmm. that, that moment of denial, I think that goes on with a lot of people, Uh, For me, I've Mm -hmm. never been a person that's been, you know, big on hobnobbing with celebrities per se. I like to thank the people who have entertained me, who have given me some kind of influence in my career, uh, whether it be as a musician or as a writer. You know, to be able to to say thank you for everything that you've given me, that's a big deal to me. But I understand, Mm -hmm. you know, celebrityism. I think it's just taken very far in this country. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And I also think that... uh... One of the things about celebrities is the reason why they're so close friends and they have such a clicky kind of thing is because they're safe. Uh, fans uh, can be extraordinarily dangerous, and my own personal experience with it and my own personal feeling is the more intelligent they are, the more dangerous they are.
0: Oh wow! I'm going to start acting really stupid from now on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, no, yeah, I mean, there's you you, you, you know, but the thing is, an intelligent, you know, a smarter fan. They're a fan for a reason and they want to get in good. So uh, they start doing what they do, what all fans do, but they're just more clever at it. they have a more subtle way of being and they can work themselves into your life and they can create disturbances. Yeah. I've been been through that one myself. So I understand
0: it. Yeah. That's very true. You know, but, but I think that people tend to look at the character and think that the actor is that character yeah, that's true, and that's that's where it goes wrong, you know. What's the actor's
1: name that was in Airplane? That
0: Les, Leslie Nielsen. Was... No, 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 there's a young star. The other oh, um played... Robert. Uh... Can you, we
1: were. I'm he gonna... and I were sitting next to each other at a bar on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard once. I just happened to be sitting with him, and we were talking. And he, I had a, a jacket on. It was really nice football-like jacket, but it was from a, a dojo uh, for uh, Taekwondo, where I was studying Taekwondo. Mm-hmm. And so we we're talking a while, and he looks at me because goes, uh, can I ask you a question? He goes, I go, yeah, sure. He goes, do you feel safe wearing that thing? And I look, I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, I mean, like, that's almost like an invitation to get tried, wow. to be tested. And... Uh, I thought about it and I realized that I'd had another experience where I was working on a show downtown, and an LA police officer gave me one of their LAPD hats, baseball caps, which I, I wore baseball caps all the time. And so I wore this one to call to Oregon, actually. But one day I was out with my then wife and our son, and uh, there was a little circus thing, you know, one of those little carnival things in a parking lot. So we decided to take the boy over there and do that. And boy, it was ugly. Wow. Because I had that LADP hat on. I got looks. I got suggested comments. I mean, there was people who looked at me with just hatred. Mm -hmm. And I went, whoa, you know what? I think you need to be careful what you wear. Yeah. (laughs) Unless you're looking for a fight. (laughs) You know, in Texas, they said, oh, never mind. we will get into that. (laughs) Anyway, you got to be careful.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, now that we have the internet and everyone has a forum for hatred, it's just you know, it's it's become an exponential thing, and it's one of the reasons that I am not on it very often. Yeah, you know, uh, I think the actor you were talking about was it Robert Hayes?
1: It might have been, might have been. I don't remember. I didn't work on the film. Uh, yeah, you know, I I had I I didn't know him. I I knew who he was when we when we were talking because I recognized that you know the movie was. Not too long out. I don't even know how we came to be sitting together, actually, but we were at the bar mm-hmm. and uh, talking, and
0: uh, yeah, very cool. Well, John, I could talk to you for hours. I mean, I've had such a good time with this conversation. Uh, you're going to have to come back before the show's over and uh, and and tell us some more about how this all works. I think you've got such fascinating insight from your experiences, and it's it's really unique because. People are so guarded these days, they're afraid that if someone hears them say this, then they're not going to get hired. And uh, it, it shouldn't be that way. We don't solve problems unless we have open dialogues like you and I have had today.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's that's really what it's about. I, I do admit that uh, sometimes on Facebook, I will say something to some people. And and bottom line, my position is, you know, some, if somebody says, you know, the government is against us, I I go, excuse me, six and a half million people make their living working for the federal government. Mm-hmm. What about the millions of people that work for the state government? Then you have your local government. Exactly what people are you talking about
0: here? Right. Yeah, it's it's such a broad thing to say the government because that that exactly it's it's not possible that the government could do that.
1: Yeah. And, and then and then I point out, you know, you're talking about the politicians. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about the politicians, they were elected to office. So when you talk about that, then you have to take responsibility because you have a vote. Right. So if you're going to blame somebody for the way things are, you need to start blaming yourself Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and others around you because you're not doing your job. We're not doing our
0: job. But it's almost like people just want to be angry. And, And politics is such a great forum for that, you know, but people have conversations where they just they just speak and they listen until they hear something they don't like, and then they stop listening and start working on their rebuttal while the person that's talking to them thinks that they're still listening, and we don't have communication anymore.
1: Yeah, there's a term for that. It's called already, already listening. It's Mm. a term that's coined by landmark, uh, which has got a long history. It used to be est in the beginning that's already already listening that's the thing they warn you about don't already already listen listen to what's being said then form a thought right not coming up with an answer <laughs> well yeah
0: <laughs> i mean i i can't uh i i can't convince you of my point if i don't understand where you're coming from yeah and we don't do that you know uh, but that's a problem that we'll solve hopefully someday. I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's just going to get worse <laughs> for a while, unfortunately. But John, I've yeah. had such a great time talking to you. Thank you so much. I didn't mean to keep you this long, but I, I really had a great time talking to you.
1: Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. And I've enjoyed it because we've covered so many different things. I like that.
0: Yeah, we really have. <laughs> well, you'll have to come back and, and come on the show again. I'd like to have Dev back on, too. Uh, she was such a great guest. She was on episode 15. Yours will be, I think, 192. Uh, wow. And uh, we're doing 300 on this show. So we got a ways to go yet. Great. Okay. I look forward to it. All right. Well, you take care, my friend. We'll we'll talk again soon. Have a great time Saturday night with Voices from the Grave. If you guys are hearing this and you're in Sedona, get down there and check it out. Thank you. Good night. And thank you. Take care, John. Bye-bye. Yeah. What a great guest. That's probably one of the best interviews I think I've done on this show. And you know, it may have seemed like I was pushing towards a closing at a couple points during it, but I've tried to keep the episodes to like 30 to 45 minutes. But what I found is that these conversations are just so good that i really don't want to cut them off i want to explore more things you know i want to dig deep into some of these conversations and topics and uh, i'm really glad that we kept going uh, i certainly appreciate john's time i tried to be respectful of my guests but there was just so much to talk about so thank you john so much for being on the show and i wish you the best with your gig tonight in sedona